3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, everyone. How exciting. Uh, it is a beautiful, uh, very bright day today. Uh, too bright. Suspiciously <laughs> bright. I was like, have I left the house an hour late? Yeah, it was a bit um, confusing, but I liked it. I was like, ooh, even though it was rainy and quite cold, I was like, oh, wow, it feels like summer. Things are changing. It's <laughs> going to be, that's right, backyard beers in uh, no time. But we, as usual, have a lot on for you today, so maybe we'll jump into our rundown. So um, first up, we are very lucky to be joined by Australian Human Rights Commissioner Lorraine Finlay, who's going to speak with us about Australia's lack of progress on its obligations as a party to the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And this conversation follows a national symposium on OPCAT last week, which brought together human rights experts to discuss key areas of concern in the lead-up to a visit from the United Nations Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture to Australia, which is planned for late 2022. Next up, we'll hear from Andy Hall, a migrant worker rights specialist and journalist, on the case being brought in the US against Ansel subsidiary in relation to forced labour in Malaysia. Last week, Andy spoke with Giselle from Asia-Pacific Currents with an update of the case, APC, News and Labour Updates from the Asia-Pacific Region. Excellent. And uh, after that, we hear from Marie McCabe AM, who's the CEO of Dementia Australia and a member of the organization's board, and uh, as well as a recognized leader in the health and aged care sector. Marie brings more than 20 years' experience across the health, mental health, and aged care sectors to this role, and she joins us today in the lead-up to Dementia Action Week 2022, which is from Monday the 19th of September to Sunday the 25th of September, to speak about this year's theme, a little support makes a big difference. And then we will be chatting to Texter Queen, who is a queer, disabled, non-binary, Goan Indian, second-generation settler, living on Wurundjeri land, known for using the humble fibre-tip marker to draw out complex politics of gender, race, sexuality and identity. Today, Texter joins us to speak about their creative practice, the monarchy as well as their project in the works, they swarm and upcoming exhibitions. How exciting. I think um, I, I always love closing out on an art segment because I think it gives us a bit of fire, but also hope about the amazing creative practice that so many people are engaged uh, in. And uh, go out and grab Texas book, uh, Learn Your ACABs. Pretty, pretty special stuff. So um, maybe we'll head to a community service announcement before we come back with the news. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. 
Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Hi, my name is John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. M and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record. Right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 15th of September. Listeners, please be advised that the first two headlines in this update do contain mention of First Nations people who have died. The coronial inquest into the killing of Walpere man Kumanjai Walker continues this week in Alice Springs with shocking and racist text messages from the police officer who shot Mr. Walker revealed. A bid by Constable Zachary Rolfe's lawyers for the text messages not to be considered was rejected by the coroner earlier this week on the grounds that the messages point to systemic racism against First Nations people, which could have, been, uh, which could have played a role in the shooting. Coroner Elizabeth Armitage also decided that Rolf's ex-fiancée should be called to give evidence, ruling that some aspects of the evidence, quote, might be said to suggest an over-preparedness on the use of Constable Rolf to draw and slash or use a firearm, end quote. In response to the continued attempts from Mr. Rolf's lawyers to limit the scope of the inquest, family members of Mr. Walker said they are saddened by the objections, noting that all the points objected to are, quote, extremely important in understanding why this happened to Kumanjai and in turn how there can be a change to how police interact with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the future, end quote. The inquest is expected to hear from witnesses today and continues through into November. Also in news headlines, earlier this week, a 38-year-old Gundachmara and Wiradjuri man, Clinton Austin, died in custody in Loddon Prison in Castle, Maine. The death is currently being investigated by the Coroner's Court of Victoria following calls from his family who said Mr Austin had faced delays in getting parole and had been let down by the justice system. Mr Clinton, a father and a well-known artist, is the second First Nations man to die in custody in Victoria in five weeks and the third in the past year. And finally, in headlines, the state ombudsman has found Victoria's working with children checks are some of the weakest in the country, with serious flaws revealed following an investigation into a former youth worker's unauthorised access to private information about children. The report also outlines how former youth worker Alexander Jones was able to obtain a working with children clearance, permitting him to work with vulnerable children and young people, despite previously being investigated for serious interstate child protection concerns. The Ombudsman is calling for improved privacy practices by the Department of Justice and Community Safety and much-needed amendments to Victoria's child safety screening laws to ensure all relevant information relating to a person's risk to children is considered. 
These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 15th of September. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. I kind of want to follow that up with something because it's been, it, it really is, you know, crisis point and everything feels really horrible. But I was also wondering, do folks want to have a, a, a quick conversation about the Queen and the new king? Um, let's just say, don't, don't come out here tone policing First Nations people about how they should respond to the death of a colonial monarch. What do folks think? I think that the Queen was, as a fact, a colonizer and was vengeful and committed a lot of genocide. And I think that is the end of that fact. And anybody else who's saying that she is the quirkiest grandma, I feel like people were in a parasocial relationship yeah. with the Queen. It's so she don't know you way. like that. Exactly. It's really like um, peop- the, the way that she's being cultivated as a public figure, and this is a very important part of the way that the monarchy is marketed in the UK, is um, is as this kind, relatable face of empire, um, you know, with, with the empire part, you know, quiet. Um, mm. But, yeah, I think this is a definitely just a time yeah um one of the things that i was thinking of uh after she passed away was this quote that i learned about her which was um well actually i'm not going to quote it but (laughs) it's just one of her interesting behaviors which is often thought of as like quirky and a bit weird and kind of funny and it's that she has declared that she won't eat bananas with anything but a knife and fork for fear of looking like a monkey and on the surface I think this is you know a lot of people might have a laugh but I I think it's got some really dark undertones of deeply entrenched racism and othering and just how normalized that is in her life you know I'm like what must she think of me and my family eating with our hands on you know a Sunday dinner yeah it is (laughs) It is just wild how much this stuff becomes normalized. I feel like I shouldn't open that can of worms now because I've actually like I'm giving I'm giving a talk after this that's on like racism and common sense. So <laughs> I don't want to bore all of you uh, with the details, but uh, just encouraging folks to engage in some critical media consumption about the way that the Queen is being represented. I also think that a lot of the pictures that we're seeing are of her being in this beautiful colorful get up and she's smiling and she's laughing and I also implore people to look at pictures of the queen where she is wearing the entire medal and the whole get up and she looks like a different person and she looks like what she represents and I have found that really helpful um, in trying to process whatever the hell that is yeah I mean all all uh old white people are you know someone's grandma I mean but being someone's grandma and being the head of a global colonial empire, uh, you know, they can both be embodied in the same person. All right. We should probably wrap up with our little queen rant. Uh, but I think, yeah, definitely important to keep thinking about those things. Um, and if people are asking you, how are you commemorating the death of the queen? You can say by getting on with my life.
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yema Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. The United Nations International Day of Peace is being marked with a rally on Sunday the 18th of September. 12pm at the State Library in Melbourne. The theme of the rally is Truth, Not War. It's inspired by these words of Julian Assange. If wars can be started by lies, peace can be started by truth. This will be a broad-based, inclusive, colourful and peaceful rally with speeches and music for peace. Joining to show your opposition to AUKUS, and the acquisition of nuclear submarines. Take real climate action that recognises the massive emissions caused by wars and arms build-up and to march for truth and press freedom to drop the prosecution of peacemakers like WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange. For more details, go to Melbourne for Assange on Facebook. Melbourne for Assange are free CR supporters. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to be joined by Australian Human Rights Commissioner Lorraine Finlay, who's joining us to discuss Australia's lack of progress on its obligations as a party as a party to the optional protocol on the Convention Against Torture. And this conversation comes off the back of a national symposium on OPCAT, which was held last week and convened by Stephen Caruana of the National OPCAT Network, which brought together human rights experts to discuss key areas of concern in the lead-up to a visit from the United Nations Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture to Australia, planned for late 2022. Now, obviously, there's a lot to unpack there, and... uh, Look, Lorraine, thank you so much for joining us so early this morning. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Of course. Uh, So maybe we'll just jump into some of the details to set the scene for why it is so important to be having this conversation and what we're looking uh, looking forward to when the subcommittee visits. So Australia ratified the United Nations Convention Against Torture in 1989 and the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture in 2017. So can you start off by telling us a bit about the obligations that countries have under these instruments? Certainly. Well, the United Nations Convention Against Torture basically creates an international obligation on countries to take effective measures to prevent torture. And as you noted, Australia ratified this back in 1989. So for the past 30 years, we've had this obligation and it's not new. And in my view, ensuring that governments actually prevent human rights breaches in places of detention is actually a pretty core part of their job whether or not they're required to do that by Mm. international law. And then OPCAT, which is the optional protocol, which 
we actually signed in 2009, although we didn't ratify until 2017, aims to support the Convention by establishing an obligation to ensure independent inspections, oversight and monitoring of all places of detention. So the aim is to really prevent human rights breaches from occurring in the first place by requiring states to establish what we call NPMs, or National Preventive Mechanisms, Mm. that monitor places of detention and shine a light on conditions there, but also allowing the UN Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture, or the SPT, to visit the country, conduct inspections and make its own recommendations about the things that bind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this oversight function is just so crucial. And these are actually required to be established uh, within one year of ratification to provide that oversight on the prevention of torture and ill treatment at the domestic level. And I understand that while the Australian government did ratify in 2017, they've opted under the treaty to extend the deadline to four years to work out the distribution of responsibilities and resourcing between the federal government and states and territories. And then last Last year, there was a further extension of that deadline uh, until later this year. So what progress has Australia actually made on the establishment and resourcing of NPMs in this time? Well, you're absolutely right. There have been a number of extensions, and I think it's important to highlight that that means the coming deadline of the 20th of January next year is absolutely critical in terms of ensuring that Australia actually meets its commitments and tells the world that we're ready to fulfil our promises under OPTAC. But there has been some progress. It's important not to um, not to ignore the fact that there have been some steps towards OPTAC implementation, quite significant ones. But one of the difficulties is that, as a federation, Australia has decided to establish a multiple-body monitoring system of NPMs, which means that we need NPMs to be designated at not only the Commonwealth level, but each state and territory level as well. And so... While some state and territories have done this, others haven't. There's great variation amongst the different states and territories in terms of the progress they've made. So the biggest challenge we have leading up to next January is actually making sure that every single Australian jurisdiction designates NPMs, that they all have the necessary legislative framework to support their mandates and give them the powers to do what they need to do under OPTAT, and most importantly, that they all have sufficient resources to actually be able to carry out their functions in an effective way. Yeah, because I I do know that, um, for example, at the New South Wales level, there was, you know, last year some concern about not wanting to establish something until there was adequate resourcing to actually support the oversight mechanism. So I can see that there are some concerns here in terms of the sort of jurisdictional uh, levels of oversight. Uh, so last week, uh, Stephen Caruana was involved in coordinating the National OPCAT Symposium, which brought together human rights experts across Australia to discuss the implementation of this treaty and, um, you know, included some really important insights on a variety of issues, including intersecting with the rights of the child and of people with disabilities um, and First Nations people's concerns especially. So can you share some of the key insights and concerns that did come out of this event? Absolutely. Now, this was an absolutely amazing event that was developed as a partnership between the Australian Human Rights Commission and the RMIT College of Business and Law. It was held in Melbourne last week and had almost 200 attendees, including representatives from 42 
statutory oversight agencies and commissions from both Australia and New Zealand, together with government departments, civil society and academia. And at the symposium, we heard from speakers including Dr Alice Edwards, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, and Ian Anderson, the new Commonwealth Ombudsman. So it was a great opportunity to really identify where Australia is at the moment, but importantly, the steps we need to take before January next year to make sure we actually comply with our OPCAT international obligations. But just briefly, there were three key takeaways from the symposium. The first was that in her keynote address, Dr Alice Edwards actually highlighted that the eyes of the world are really on Australia at the moment. And she pleaded with us not to let budgetary matters, which you mentioned before, stand in the way of us protecting vulnerable people from torture. The second thing that was really important is we identified some specific areas of need and held some focused workshops that looked specifically at OPCAT and its specific application to people with disabilities, to children and to First Nations people. And it really identified that these are areas that need a particular focus and that need particular expertise. And I think the final thing is that while there's still a long way to go to make sure Australia fully implements OPCAT by the deadline, and you know, on my count this morning, there's only 125 days to go until that, there were almost 200 people at the symposium who were committed, who have really significant expertise, and who really believe in the positive change that OPCAT can deliver. So while it highlighted that we do have a lot of work ahead of us, I actually left the symposium feeling really positive about what we can all achieve and knowing that there is a significant groundswell of support around Australia to make sure that we do fulfil the international promises that we've made. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, it, it, the onus is really on governments at the state, territory and federal level to harness that expertise and draw on it to actually get the, get those changes made by the deadline. So um, I was also hoping that you could comment in a bit more detail on the relationship between incarceration and colonialism. And I know um, that this was mentioned by the special repertoire in in the uh, opening address to, at, at the at the conference. So um, especially considering Australia's failure to fully implement the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, and also more recently the Royal Commission into the detention and protection of children in the Northern Territory. So how do you see these kinds of systemic failures across federal, state and territory governments in relation to the level of political commitment that's required to fully adhere to OPCAT by the deadline? It's a really important point and a really significant question that needs to be addressed. And you're right, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture did address this directly in her speech. And what she highlighted was that the disproportionate incarceration rates that we have in Australia and deaths in custody of Indigenous Australians um, really draw a link between our colonial past and a continued legacy of inequality within our criminal justice system. And she then went on to conclude that a country that has that history and is grappling with that legacy really has so much to gain from implementing OPCAT as a mechanism to improve our treatment of people in detention. And I think it, it's well acknowledged that there are some really systemic challenges in terms of Indigenous Australians and our criminal justice system and the interaction there. Now, OPCAT won't solve all of those problems, but in my view, fully implementing OPCAT is a really big step in the right direction and really allows us to shine a light on some of those issues. And as you mentioned, to move from times when we've identified issues and made recommendations but really nothing's changed, hopefully to, point to a point where we can actually start creating some systemic change and actually seeing some real action. Yeah, and I mean... 
this all happens in the lead up to, uh, you know, the big oversight uh, visit from uh, from the United Nations Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture. And that visit, I know, had been delayed because of the pandemic, but it's planned to occur later this year. And what do you expect to occur during the visit and how will the SPT actually assess the protection of people that have been deprived of their liberty? So this includes people who are incarcerated in prisons or immigration detention facilities, as well as a range of other different places in Australia. And that's a really important point because OPCAT isn't just limited to what you automatically think about when you think about places of detention, which is prisons and immigration detention centres. It actually has a broader impact across all places of detention. But the SPT, when they visit in October, it's actually a very timely visit and one that I really welcome because it's a great chance for us to really focus on the key steps we need to take to ensure that we meet our OPCAT obligations and to draw on the expertise from the members of the subcommittee. Now, during a, sub, during a country visit, the SPT can visit and actually inspect any place of detention, as well as speaking with detainees, centre staff, officials, oversight bodies and civil society. And they can also make recommendations from those visits and inspections about the action that needs to be taken to improve conditions and treatment in these places. So... The really important thing, I think, about the SPT visit is that while it can highlight potential issues of concern and make recommendations about what needs to be done, the visits aren't meant to be combative. What's different about OPCAT and SPT visits is that they're designed to actually be really constructive and to focus on how the country can work with the SPT and how NPMs can work with the SPT and government to actually improve practices and prevent these human rights breaches from occurring in the first place. So OPCAT isn't designed to be something that um, is negative. It's designed to actually be a really positive, constructive process that aims to create real improvements in the way that we treat people in detention. Of course, and I think it's important to highlight the, the non-adversarial nature of these processes. I mean, ultimately, the concern is the, the human rights uh, and welfare of people that are being detained in, um, you know, in a variety of different facilities, that they're not subject to, to torture practices effectively. And I think going back to something that you said uh, earlier in relation to the UN Special Rapporteur's speech, um, I think... Uh, it is so important that she did highlight that budgetary concerns shouldn't prevent us from really implementing these basic fundamental concerns that, you know, center the, the rights and dignity and humanity of people that are uh, in detention facilities. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to leave us with before we wrap up? Well, I think the point that you finished on is really powerful, that, you know, OPCAT creates a legal mechanism at the international level and is part of our international treaty obligations but at its heart, it really just highlights the basic fundamental principle that all people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect and that those in detention who are particularly vulnerable, we have particular obligations to ensure that basic conditions are met and that we're not torturing people. They're pretty simple obligations and I would hope that they're obligations or standards Australia would try to meet regardless of whether we've signed an international treaty to tell us so. Uh, that is just a perfect way to sum it up. I think um, we shouldn't have to have signed an international treaty to oblige us not to torture people who are being detained. Thank you so much, Lorraine, for joining us this morning and taking us through some of those issues.
Thanks so much. And that was Australian Human Rights Commissioner Lorraine Finlay, who spoke with us about Australia's lack of progress on its obligations as a party to the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. And this conversation does follow off the back of a national symposium on OCAT last week, which brought together human rights experts to discuss some key areas of concern in the lead up to a visit from the United Nations Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture to Australia, which is planned for October this year. And as Lorraine mentioned, there's a whole lot of expertise and a groundswell of enthusiasm from the community and human rights advocates, but it really is up to the federal, territory and state governments to act on that. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. And now we go to Andy Hall, uh, who is a migrant rights specialist and journalist on the case being brought in the U.S. against Ansel subsidiary in relation to forced labor in Malaysia. Andy spoke with Giselle from Asia-Pacific Currents with an update of the case. News and labor updates from the Asia-Pacific region from Saturdays from 9 a.m. I spoke to Andy Hall. He's a migrant worker specialist and a journalist, and he's the person who has brought a forced labour claim to the US court system in relation to workers in Malaysia who are making products for Ansel. You might have seen this in the mainstream press. It's a campaign that Australia Asia Worker Links has been working on for a couple of years now, a global picket line campaign in Ansel's supply chain. Uh, it commenced with the uh, sacking and lack of compensation for the unionists in Sri Lanka. And then as we did more and more work, we discovered this um, forced labour in, in Ansel's supply chain. So... I interviewed Andy Hall, who is a migrant worker specialist and journalist. He's involved in a global campaign against Ansel, uh, and that campaign is coordinated by AAWL. Andy brought a legal case against Ansel on behalf of some forced labourers in Malaysia. Personal protective equipment giant Ansel is being taken to task over its ties to a Malaysian glove maker alleged to have subjected workers to forced labour and squalid living conditions inside shipping containers. Andy, you are one of the main people behind the investigation and you're the person who brought a complaint to the US Customs Department. Tell us what your investigation uncovered. 
this is one of the worst uh, situations in the glove industry that I found in, in many years. Uh, I think it, it was a situation which had many of these indicators of forced labor, the ILO's indicators of forced labor, but particularly really poor accommodation, workers who paid so much recruitment fees. There was evidence of um, violence, harassment, really difficult working conditions, very long hours, um, passport confiscation, deduction from workers' salaries for things um, like food and, and other things. And, and it was really a difficult situation. And, and as we investigated that case and as we made complaints, uh, we also faced um, retaliation against our two main whistleblowers in the case. And they both had to, um, they, they both ended up back in Bangladesh. One of them had to flee from the, from the, from the company. So it's a really difficult situation. And, and as I say, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection has now blocked all of the right ways goods from coming into the U.S. So um, they've agreed with us that the indicators of forced labor um, uh, were, were detected. So it's a very difficult case, a very sad situation. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's concerning. That's why we're, we're taking this case in the U.S. courts. A lot of those workers are migrant workers in Malaysia. What kind of backgrounds do they predominantly come from? So most of the workers in Brightway were from uh, Nepal, Bangladesh, um, India, um, but, but some other nationalities also. And, and some of those workers paid very high recruitment fees up to like maybe the equivalent of $5,000. So they came from incredibly poor backgrounds. Uh, maybe they didn't have any opportunities for working and for income in their um in their lives so it was it was a really difficult situation for them and they came to malaysia to try to earn money to try to you know eke out an existence and and they're very low skilled workers most of them although some of them may have had skills and yeah but mostly uh, low skilled manual laborers who were working on uh, glove production lines can you describe um a little bit about the way that the workers organized if they had any scope at all to organize what were the industrial relations type conditions for workers at Brightway you've already talked a little bit about the retaliation against the whistleblowers but can you talk a little bit about the scope to organize or are unions just smashed all together yeah, I mean it's a very difficult situation in Malaysia uh, because the union generally, um, with, with very few exceptions, reach out to migrant workers because they don't see potential to organise them or to get membership fees from them. There are some unions in a few glove factories, but almost both at the domestic or the regional or the international level, and um, to put um, resources and efforts into organising workers. So this is a sector which has little to no uh, union coverage. I mean there are some worker committees within some of the companies, the glove companies in Malaysia. We're not aware of any in this in this uh, company. So I mean essentially the workers are on their own and and like many of the work that I've had to do in the glove sector, it's essentially been myself and, and the guys that, uh, and, the, and the ladies that I've worked with have, um, have really tried hard to, to represent these workers um, on, a, on a global platform, engaging Amsel, engaging other companies, uh, engaging media to try to get their voices out. But, but I would say that the voices that we've got out from the workers are not organized voices. These are, you know, cries for help and, and they're very much individual workers helping us, whistleblowers helping us. So I would say that this is an area where there's almost no um, social dialogue, no effective uh, industrial relations, no unions, uh, no organized worker voice. It's very much us trying our best to, to get a voice of workers. And, and unfortunately, you know, the other way that workers' voice comes out is through these audits, you know, these social compliance audits. And what we found in Brightway and also across the whole glove sector is the complete failure of these social compliance audits to actually 
um represent worker voice you know so you know that the, what the audits were saying was there was no problems or the problems were not forced labor they weren't very serious so not only is there no industrial relations no worker organizing no organized worker voice but the one method that can sometimes result in workers voices being heard which is these social compliance auditors uh, audits which are supposed to be independent also very much failed so the workers were really without a voice uh, and without the mechanisms, you know, to do even even when we help them, they faced retaliation, they faced harassment. So it's a really uh, difficult area to, to work in. How has Ansel and there's another company that's been implicated in this Kimberly Clark Corporation? How have those two companies responded to the allegations? I mean, I've engaged Ansel. I was going back as we we're preparing for this legal um, legal battle in the US, and and also. You know, for the various media like ABC and, and Sydney Morning Herald and Fairfax and stuff, I was going through all my communications and I started, you know, as soon as I heard about this issue at Brightway, I immediately engaged Ansel. Um, and it's been little to no um, communication from their side. I think we had one call on, on some other issues, but I've been engaging them because generally when I get information, I, I will share it with the buyers. Um, I will share it with the media. I will share it with investors. I will share it with governments. Um, and I shared that information with them. Uh, and there was little to no response. And, and I've continued engaging them um, as things have developed. And I've had almost uh, zero uh, response from them, with, with a few exceptions. There was one call and there, I think there was one email recently once this issue of litigation started. Uh, and then also once we decided to take this litigation. And again, the workers have been paid back their recruitment fees after a, a huge battle and after the U.S. Customs uh, imposed the sanctions. But we believe that that's not enough. You know, these workers suffered for so long in conditions of uh, alleged forced labor. And we believe that this repayment of their recruitment fees um, is not sufficient to, to, to represent the loss that they suffered. And also... We don't believe, particularly with Ansel, that they have actually been involved in, in, in remediating anything in this company. They may well have been. We just don't know about it. But we know that Kimberly Clark, for instance, the other major buyer, has been very active, very proactive, uh, very engaging with us. But Ansel has not been. And that's why we took this case, because we believe that these buyers, these massive buyers, need to be held responsible for the forced labor situation in their supply chain. And we reached out to the companies many months ago through the, the council that we've hired, in the, the workers have hired in the U.S., um, to try to engage them to try to uh, mediate this this issue uh, so we didn't have to take it to court and and they've been very much defiant and and refused to um, involve in any kind of uh, mediation um, so that's why we had to take the case to court because we don't believe that they're they're addressing these complaints with the seriousness with which they need to be taken and we believe that we need to to, to file this case against them, both to get the attention of uh, the company, but also their investors and, and the wider international community as to the challenges that workers are being uh, that are facing here. Well, my next question actually is about this court case in the US. Um, it's being promoted as a case about modern slavery, as you said, in Ansel's supply chain. Um, but can you actually describe for the listeners exactly what is this? Like what kind of forum is this matter being heard in? What sort of court has jurisdiction for a case of modern slavery? So, I mean, obviously, I'm not the lawyer in the case, but I'm very much engaged with it. I mean, this is a case under under the U.S. Um, legislation, U.S. case law, 
uh, against Ansel's subsidiary in the U.S. Obviously, Ansel is headquartered, as you know, in Melbourne, but they're, they're, they have a subsidiary in the U.S. So we're taking this, the workers are taking this action against Ansel's subsidiary uh, for complicity in modern slavery or human trafficking related issues. So what we're saying is that the company was complicit um, or, or if they didn't know, they should have known. And so we're using the, the U.S. court system to take this action uh, because obviously our lawyer is, is very expert in, in these modern slavery issues. So we're taking the case against Ansel's U.S. subsidiary, and we believe that they, they need to be held responsible and they need to remediate the, the situation of modern slavery that we've found and that the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Department have found in their supply chain. Well, Andy, thank you so, so much for your time on the program today, particularly as I've squeezed this in while you're on personal time. Uh, just as a final question, where to from here? If you lose the case in the US, where to? If you win the case, where to? I think we've managed to raise the profile of the adequacy or, or otherwise of Ansel's sustainability commitments uh, and also, you know, to look at their modern slavery statement. And I've been raising these issues with their investors this week in London also to discuss these related issues. And so I think whether we win or lose the case, and, and we do feel very confident that we will win the case, um, uh, I think that the, the, the attention is being focused on the adequacy of Ansel's modern slavery commitments, definitely. And I think that um, uh, whether, as I say, whether we win or lose the case, that the profile or the, the, the importance of these issues has been raised by the, by the litigation. And I think Ansel is, is, you know, and I think they, they have been aware for some time that there are many challenges in the, 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 the adequacy of their modern slavery prevention and also how they embed sustainability issues, including forced labor and, and social issues into their supply chain. So I think whatever the result of the court case, um, the, the, the heat is on Ansel and, and they have to respond. And, and that's not just from, from the uh, Australian Asian worker links, people like myself, activists, trade unionists, all of us that have been campaigning. But I think now the investors are also showing a lot of concern uh, over these issues. Ansel is a listed company. So I think that definitely we've raised the stakes and the profile. So I think that's a positive thing. Andy Hall, a migrant worker specialist and journalist, and he's the one who brought the case um, to the US court system in relation to forced labour in Malaysia in relation to Ansel. And that was Andy Hall, migrant worker rights specialist and journalist, talking about the case being brought in the United States against Ansel's subsidiary in relation to forced labour in Malaysia. And Andy was speaking with Giselle from Asia-Pacific Currents with an update on the case. And you can catch news and labor updates from Asia, from the Asia Pacific region on Asia Pacific Currents Saturdays from 9 a.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. Now, listeners will be aware of the very tragic passing of Uncle Jack Charles, uh, this week. And we really, uh, as a crew want to send our condolences to his family, to his loved ones, and to anybody who was touched by his amazing career in the arts, but also his amazing personality and warmth as just a just a human person that you could see zooming around on his scooter north side. Um, so in light of that, um, I'm going to play We Won't Cry featuring Jack Charles. So this is Archie Roach and Jack Charles performing this live. If your burden's too heavy, if it's gonna break you, and you might go crashing to the ground. 
Just keep yourself steady And don't let it take you Take you on down Take you on down Well, I may beside you And don't you forget it I'm with you walking down this road Give up what's inside you You won't regret it Together we can lighten it And that was We Won't Cry by Archie Roach and Uncle Jack Charles. And now we are going to our next interview by, with Mary McCarb, who is the CEO of Dementia Australia and a member of the organisation's board. A recognised leader in health and aged care, Marie brings more than 20 years of experience across health, mental health and aged care sectors prior to her current role. She joins us today to speak 
to us in the lead-up of Dementia Action Week, starting Monday the 19th of September, to speak on this year's theme, A Little Support Makes a Big Difference. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Marie. Thank you so much, Inez, and uh, I'm joining today from Woiwurrung Land. Beautiful. Thank you so much for um, taking the time uh, to speak with us today. And I just want to go back to the, this year's theme, which is a little support makes a big difference. And it has stated that discrimination has a significant impact on people who are living with dementia, their families and carers, and a little bit of support from community and healthcare professionals can make a big difference. Could you speak about maybe what dementia is and how people living with dementia are often discriminated against? Absolutely. Dementia is a disease of the brain. And right now in Australia, we've got about 500,000 Australians living with dementia and without a breakthrough of some sort, a medical breakthrough, we will have around 1.1 million Australians living with dementia by the year 2058. And nobody in Australia will not be impacted. Everybody will be impacted in some way with those figures. And it is really important that people understand that dementia is the second leading cause of death in Australia after heart disease and the leading cause of death of women. And one of the biggest challenges that people living with dementia share with us is around discrimination and the impact of discrimination can be significant and Australian and international studies show us that stigma and discrimination associated with a dementia diagnosis can actually discourage people from seeking health care, including getting a diagnosis. And it can also reduce social engagement with family, friends and the broader community. Now, that can have very serious consequences for the physical, the cognitive and the psychosocial health of the person living with dementia. And why diagnosis is important is because it actually means that people living with dementia can access vital services and support sooner. And we know with all conditions, the earlier that we get treatment and support, the better the outcomes. And it is the same with people for dementia. And to help people support a better quality of life and better plan for the future, that early diagnosis is really important. Now, with discrimination, we know that discriminatory behaviour is often unintended and That comes, I think, from a lack of understanding. Not all disabilities are visible and dementia is one of those disabilities that is not so visible. And what people can't see, they often don't understand and what they don't understand, they often tend to avoid. And that's what people living with dementia share with us is that their experience is of being avoided, isolated and cut off from family, friends, loved ones and the community. Yeah, it sounds like it is quite an isolating experience, um, particularly if you don't have a lot of support around you. And as you've mentioned previously, like, you know, there is almost, it's set to pretty much double um, the people who are living with dementia uh, in the next 20, 25 years. So I think just in the lead up to that, <laughs> what are some barriers to accessible health and community care that you're currently seeing and how can this be improved? Well, one of them is discrimination and we know that no one should have to face dementia alone and that's why Dementia Australia is here. And people, by better understanding dementia, can help make a positive difference to the lives of people impacted by the condition and also help eliminate dementia. And 
there's no need to have a diagnosis of dementia to call Dementia Australia. There's no reason too small, no issue too big and no time too late. So please call the National Dementia Helpline on 1800 100 500. We're available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year or our website, dementia.org.au. And there's lots of information on our website. We've got over 30 help sheets in, sorry, over 100 help sheets in 32 different languages. And it's really important for people to understand, especially if they have a loved one with dementia or know someone who's caring for a loved one with dementia to be able to provide support. And those barriers are often, you know, it's often knowing where to go, when to go there, and also discrimination can get in the way of that and Dementia Australia can provide all of the information that people need about the best support and services that are available for people living with dementia. Thank you for that. I I guess uh, I'm also wondering when we speak about accessible health care for dementia and being discriminated against, um, is it discrimination based on the illness or is it intersecting um, identities? Could you maybe speak to a little bit more about that? Sometimes it's a little of both, but mostly what people share with us is that it is about the illness. And we know that, um, you know, knowledge, understanding and beliefs about dementia, they vary significantly in the, ethnic, in the ethnically, culturally and socially diverse communities of Australia. And these differences can further complicate and sometimes worsen the experiences of stigma and discrimination. In some languages, there is no word for dementia. And some of the examples that people share with us of discrimination include family and friends withdrawing and people with dementia report they're less likely to be included in social occasions and family get-togethers. Doctors and other health professionals can contribute to this at times and it's when they communicate only with the person's carer instead of with the person living with dementia Mm -hmm. because they made an assumption that the person with the diagnosis no longer has the capacity to contribute to a conversation or make decisions about themselves and that's often very incorrect. And people living with dementia and carers share that they're not offered the same access to wellness and allied health services because there's an assumption that they won't benefit from that. And people who share their diagnosis with employers may be less likely to receive the same level of support to continue to work or to transition out of work as people with other chronic diseases. Yeah, it's clear that it's really important to keep that support around and understand where, you know, medical discrimination or or racism is occurring so that they're not isolated in that experience alone. Um, And also not to, yeah, infantilize them or only speak to the carer. Um, It's the same thing when you're, you know, speaking to an interpreter. You still look at the person that you're speaking to and the interpreter is also there to support. Um, I guess also with language challenges uh, for older people living with dementia, could you speak to some of the yeah some of the language challenges that are, are associated with people um, who are living with dementia? Because I'm sure you know people who are living with dementia who are from historically excluded backgrounds face a different set of challenges. And this is a really important area. And one of the things that we find as people from culturally and linguistically diverse communities 
when they progress with dementia, many return to their language of origin. Now, if that's a dialect that is no longer spoken, that is incredibly isolating for the person living with dementia. And it's why it's so important that carers can provide all of the information that they have about that person so that we can ensure that their care, that their support and their treatment is culturally sensitive, that it supports their likes, their preferences and avoids their dislikes. And it is something that we need to be really aware of. And the use of interpreters, as you mentioned earlier, is a really important part of communicating with people if they have lost the ability to speak English. And I mentioned earlier that we have over 100 different help sheets in 32 different languages that can support people, but really important that we are culturally sensitive and aware of what is most important to that to support that person at that particular time in their dementia experience. Yeah, I think knowing that that is... Um a really, really challenging thing and can be even more isolating if you're already isolated um, on, on top of also experiencing dementia. But I Absolutely. think also with the one of the discrimination stories that were on your website, or I think for Dementia Action Week, and I think it speaks to a lot of what we've been speaking about, is someone had said when people say they have cancer, everybody will step in to support. And with dementia, they avoid you. And yeah. uh, I guess... What do you wish people actually knew about dementia and maybe try to dispel some of those myths? Look, I wish they knew that even though the person may have changed in terms of their abilities, and one of the things about dementia is that people lose the ability to do things because of the effect on their brain. And so, you know, they may lose the ability to find their way home or as the dementia progresses, they may forget names with certain times of dementia where memory is impaired or it may be that they're not able to communicate in the same way but they are still there and I just wish that people knew that and I wish they knew how important family and loved ones are to people living with dementia and to carers and I think it's really important that we mention that carers are, need to be well supported and they often look, caring for a loved one can be such a gift, but it doesn't mean it's not challenging at times. Absolutely. And the people who are carers, they need support and the things that we can do to support them, just ringing, you know, on a regular basis, how are you? Do you need anything? Making sure they have a break. They can't look after their loved one if they're not looking after themselves and, we're, and if we're not looking out for them. So as a community, there's so much that we can do. And as we say for this campaign, a little support really does make a big difference. Amazing. Thank you so much, Marie. I think also lastly, what can our listeners do to support Dementia Action Week and, uh, yeah, as as well as people living with dementia? If you go to our website, to discrimination.org.au, Please check out the information that's there. The more that we know about dementia, the more we know how to support people living with it. And look, you might be able to identify that somebody, let's say in the shopping centre, is struggling with, I don't know, figuring something out. It's asking people, you know, are you okay? Do you need a hand? Looking out for people that may be experiencing cognitive difficulties and just offering, how can I help 
you know, what could I do that would help right now? They're the sorts of things that as a community we can do. And the more we know, the better able we are to provide support to people in a time that can be confusing, frightening, and at a time when they really need our support. So please learn a bit about dementia, understand it, and then for the people in your life that you know that may be living with it or caring for somebody living with dementia, please give them a little support. It can make a big difference. Amazing. And do call. Sorry, if I can just say an no, of course. Please call the National Dementia Helpline on one eight hundred one hundred five hundred. We're available twenty four seven, three hundred and sixty five days a year. No worries, Marie. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, in light up for Dementia Action Week, but I hope you have a really good day and it was really insightful. Thank you so much, Inez. It was such a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for sharing about dementia this week. It's really important. Amazing. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Bye now. And we were joined by Marie McCarp, who's the CEO of Dementia Australia, in the lead up to Dementia Action Week, to speak on this year's theme, A Little Support Makes a Big Difference, which is tackling discrimination. Um, And Dementia Action Week starts Monday 19th of September to Sunday the 25th, and you can also visit their website for further information. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the. How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives. Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And Inez, uh, I'm going to go to you for the next song. And now a very, very, very special song. Um, this is one of my favorite DJs, Joythi, and she has done a remix of one of my favorite Bollywood songs, Thal Sital, um, and enjoy the most beautiful, sexy remix you can. <laughs> Thank you. 
What is this nonsense? You want a proper fix? Call me. You want to get your fix? Call me. You want to change six? Call me. Me up the remix? Call me. You want a proper fix? Call me. You want to get your fix? Call me. You want to change six? Call me. Me up the remix? Call me. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And you just heard Joyti's remix of Tal Se Tal, and now we're going to a new song. Yeah, so this is my favourite track of the week. I've been listening to it on repeat, and it's called Dance Ritual 2 by Auntie Flo, Feet and Bully.
The Seoul Musni Center for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheater. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. So the last song we heard was called Dance Ritual 2 by Auntie Flo featuring Anne Bully. And now we're going into our chat with Texter Queen, the real queen. Um, Texter is a queer, disabled, non-binary, Goan Indian, second generation settler living on Wurundjeri land, known for using the humble fibre tip marker to draw out complex politics of gender, race, sexuality and identity. They examine existence and empowerment in dis-slash-connection to their own and others' ancestral lands, investigating these themes via photography, drawing, painting, printmaking, video, performance, self-publishing, curating, music, writing and murals. Today, Texter joins us to speak about their creative practice, the monarchy, and as well as their project in the works, they swarm, and upcoming exhibitions. Good morning, Texter. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Good morning, Texter. Can you hear me on the other side of the line? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Sorry about that. Yes, we can hear you fine. Okay, great. Small technical issue. <laughs> Welcome. I thought we could start by learning a bit more about your creative practice and interests. So how long have you been making art and what are some of the reoccurring themes and topics that you kind of continue to explore over the years? Uh, yeah, I guess it's coming up to like 25 years now. <laughs> that I've been, um, wow. Uh, yeah, that I've been out of art school and uh, making art. And I guess I've always been uh, making art sort of in collaboration with other people. Um, but the themes have kind of changed. I've always been, yeah, interested in sort of like using um, subjective experience to talk about like collective experience and... Um, uh, themes of gender and then in the last decade or so race and uh, sexuality, identity um, yeah and (laughs) I'm really interested in I guess yeah some of the things you said in the intro of like what it is to be on someone else's ancestral land and uh as someone also from a colonised land when I'm when I'm doing my self-portraiture. So, mm. yeah, I really like to situate what I'm doing in where I am and the histories of a place. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a very complex positionality to 
be both um, someone from a colonised history and also, you know, part of a continued colonisation here in so-called Australia. Um, And, yeah, also going back to something you said at the beginning of that question, I think collaboration when addressing these topics really is one of the things that allows us to persist and like gives us the strength to practice for a long time and get really deep into these issues um yeah so- for sure <laughs> and for me too it's like a way to uh engage with other people um intimately and um i think yeah like my closest friendships and connections and stuff have been through creative have like been strengthened or deepened by creative collaboration. Yeah. So earlier this week, just moving on to something that I was reminded of when I saw (laughs) your posts. So the Queen's death earlier this week, um, or actually it was last week now, the one week anniversary, um, reminded me of my own artwork responding to the monarchy, in particular uh, referencing Her Majesty Lizzie the Two, as I like to call her. For me, it was really about speaking back to the monarchical powers that had shaped so much of my history, yet continue to reject responsibility for their crimes. Referencing Queen Elizabeth in my creative practice was an opportunity to subvert her reputation as this virtuous, quirky, authority figure, and I really wanted to reinsert myself, a colonised diaspora still feeling the effects of generational trauma, back into that colonial narrative. These reflections got me wondering how other artists with colonised histories, such as yourself, were speaking back to monarchy through their work. Now, I was wondering if you could do a little description of your 2017 work, which is titled The Empire's New Clothes, and maybe let us in on some of the ideas behind it and what you were trying to explore. Sure. I'm just going to read the descriptions that I wrote because it's so succinct. Um, the The titular tale reference and its idiom about logical fallacies became an allegory for British colonialism. In this self-portrait as Queen Alexandra, monarch of the United Kingdom of Britain and Empress of India, based on the 1902 photograph and coronation attire, this queen wears the invisible gown of colonial legacies, keeping the famed Koh-i-Noor diamond in her crown amongst her other jewels and gown adornments substituted by items traded out of India by the East India Company. Originally owned in shares by wealthy merchants and aristocrats, the British company took its interest in India from trade to territory by a private military power, eventually acting sovereignly for the British Crown before the latter took direct control in 1858. A light in Her Majesty's eyes is the British Empire's global reign at the time, secured by tyranny, often in guises of trade. Yeah, so that, that work was from a series called God Save the Queen, um, where I uh, that I came out of a residency that I did in Varanasi, India, through Asia Asia Link, where I really was deeply immersed in the legacies of colonialism, um, being there and just all those feelings of this connection and connection, and um, yeah, what 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's where my my work, interestingly, also came out of my time in Hong Kong, where I was really kind of seeing, in an obvious way, the um, remains of the colonial heritage there. Um, and I think creative practice is a really good way to address those dark histories. And it's I always find it helpful to like work in something a bit playful because. Let's be honest, they're a bit ridiculous. Um, so I'm excited to ask you this next question. You've recently founded a project called They Swarm, which is envisioned as an artist residency for diverse and dispersed artists who you will peer mentor during their stay at your Collingwood Shopfront studio. So I just wanted to ask what the motivation, what was the motivation behind developing this project and what do you hope it could provide for the community? Yeah, I, you know, I've done so many artist residencies where I've been the only queer, the only disabled person, the mm. only brown person, um, and definitely the only of all three there. And even when those residencies have been very supported, like financially or with resources, there's been a lot to navigate in in being off that experience, off those ex- intersectional experiences, um, where no where no one else understands or has them. And yeah, I just and often that results in um, spending a lot of energy and creative energy sort of deconstructing that experience rather than and that sometimes the work ends up being. Um, very aware of like my positionality um, at it, uh, because of my identities, and I just, and I just would really I know that I make different work, and that you know artists, uh, margin, quote unquote marginalised artists, make different work when we are making work with and for each other. And yeah, the idea of the residency is peer mentoring, so I. You know, I, it's not supposed to be hierarchical. Where the person, who, the person who comes and I share space and um, exchange ideas and skills and collaborate as as it comes up. And um, yeah, I, it'll be for queer and trans, um, black, indigenous, and people of color with priority to disabled artists. Um, yeah, and. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited for the kind of work that can, can come out of it. I've been I've been fundraising for the wheelchair access, and I've been collecting books for the BIPOC library. And yeah, it kind of came out of. Also, it came out of me, um, yeah, like being very burnt out with the commercial and mm. institutional art world, and being like, why do I want to make art? Oh, because I like creating and I like collaborating. Let me um, bring back my focus to that aspect of my career. So, um, yeah, and I think there's so much pressure to produce and make enough units to sell and, like, have this institutional career. And I'm really, like, I don't want that to be my focus and I don't feel like Mm. the most interesting art comes out of having that as a focus so yeah yeah I think it gets um really exhausting kind of 
making consumable work for a white audience or white institutions and uh, just constantly having to meet those demands to survive as an artist. So it's incredibly important that you've provided this space and I'm really excited to see where it goes and who participates. Uh, so, yeah, get online, people. Get online and donate to They Swarm. We will include the link in our description today for the podcast. And finally, I just wanted to ask, how can listeners see your work, um, you know, social media, what are your upcoming shows, and yeah. how can they support your practice, like buying your work or donating? Um, yes, well, I'm actually, I've been working for the last, like, 15 months or something towards this huge show that I got a copyright agency commission to do, and it's at for a contemporary, um, for a I'm like, I forget the exact term, but that's for a <laughs> contemporary Asian art gallery in um, in on, on the Gadigal land, uh, so-called Sydney, um, that's coming up on October 22nd, and it's called Bollywoodland, and it's based on work that I begun when I was in London in 2019 during Korean Trans South Asians, and I asked them to come up with, um, with Bollywood movie poster ideas, but deconstructing all the isms, talk about their identities and histories and um, et cetera, and that's the basis of this show, but the work, it's not a work from paper show, I'm using the images to um, think the work on paper, uh, I'm like, should I... I tell the whole concept of the show now, but anyway, it's a very, it's a very exciting show that's kind of like a, um, going to create like a speculative map of um, of the of London and the, and extended UK in, um, in, inhabited by these um, by Bollywood. Um, yeah, that's all I'll say. And also, yeah, I have. I'm actually revamping my shop because there's going to be new work coming up. But, yeah, I have a shop on my website, com slash shop, and there's also a link on the website to Dayform that you can support through there. So Amazing. Yeah. Thank you, Texter. Um, I can just hear how excited you are about the upcoming exhibition, Bolly Wouldn't, at 4A. Um, contemporary. I'm very excited too. I Hopefully I can get down to see it. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's really given me little oomph that I needed to finish the week. Oh, thank you for having me. Bye. Bye. Awesome. We just heard from Texas Queen and today they talked to us about their creative practice the monarchy in creative practice, as well as their project in the works, They Swarm, and their upcoming exhibition, Bolly Wouldn't. Awesome. And that's about all we've got time for today on Thursday Breakfast. So we'll give you a very quick rundown of what we went through today. We were first joined by Australian Human Rights Commissioner Lorraine Finlay to discuss Australia's progress on its obligations as a party to the optional protocol to the Convention Against Torture. 
And then we were joined, uh, we played Andy Hall um, speaking about the Ansel subsidiary in relation to a forced labour in Malaysia. And then we were joined by Mary McCabe, who is the CEO of Dementia Australia, in the lead up to Dementia Action Week, to speak about this year's theme, A Little Support Makes a Big Difference. And finally, we were joined by the Honourable Texter Queen, which was a great delight. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you. And uh, next week, uh, the 22nd of September, you obviously know, is going to be a public holiday, uh, a national day of mourning. Though, of course, we couldn't announce a national day of mourning on January 26th, right? Not like those no. calls have been happening since 1938. It's just too hard. It's just too hard. Um, but look, folks, uh, I'd say keep an eye out to see if there are protest actions happening in your city. I know war is organizing, for example, in Mianjin. I think there's something organized on Gadigal land so keep an eye out for what may be happening uh, in Narm Uh, but we'll be with you next Thursday morning and until then take care, uh, stay dry and um, love you (laughs) (laughs) love you